Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. We are Canada's most delicious environmental news hour. Stefan Hostetter's scrumptious Caucasian bottom will be bouncing audibly all over this track, this hour-long program. I'm David Franklin Irwin, Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian Irwin, Hostetter. I'm Lauren. Thank you, David, for not commenting on the status of my butt <laughs> over the next hour. You can provide those updates as you wish. I, I will just provide the booty that is adjacent to myself. Thanks. Um, Stefan has not been working on the glutes, but just has a, a masterful way of, of, of walking okay. his gait. Um, and he will be beautifully interviewing Amanda Jiang from UBC, who is bridging the gap between engineering and social sciences. Is this engineering? Are we talking about environmental engineering? No, it, well, it, she works mostly on modeling. The conversation is, is really about the lab that she runs, which is called the Lab for Environmental Assessment and Policy, and like what we should understand, which basically is that like the assumptions you make in modeling really impact the outcome. And so you can shouldn't take modeling without understanding the assumptions that go into it. Are you drawing into question all of the climate models? No, no. This is much more specific modeling. A little talk about gathering knowledge in the Western institutional context. And we're going to do climate news. Okay, so the Premier of Alberta has put a seven, six, seven-month moratorium on uh, all renewable projects. Is that just solar and wind? Yes. All I've seen is that her one of her arguments is that the renewable grid is useless without having natural gas to back it up. And because she can't do that, then she doesn't want to do any renewables. Yeah. So the one good thing you could say about Alberta over the past few years has been that it actually has led the country in growth from renewables. The lack of uh, regulations in terms of some of these things allowed for faster growth there, um, or at least there was a lot of money going into it. And so to have this, the one good news story, you come out of Alberta, get quashed like this is both depressing and also just ridiculous because like it, it you spend all this time talking about trying to make it the least taxes least regulations we're open for business kind of talk and then the moment someone opens up a business that you decide you don't like as much you put a moratorium which is so heavy-handed it's not even like this is like other regulations or other requirements this is a absolute stoppage to work which many which many people have said that could cause like an entire year's worth of work to be lost on this project like people will be out of jobs because of this decision and it was done with no notice to the regulatory body she claims that it was partially because of the regulatory body requested it however neither letter that she cited originally showed that they were requesting this this at all and then, yeah, she comes back and saying the reason why she has to do this is because no one wants to build gas plants anymore because the vibes are off from the Trudeau government, which also doesn't make sense because here in Ontario, we are building multiple gas plants. And so every part of it is just nonsense. Not to mention the fact that, like, the baseload power piece, just to talk briefly about the energy policy of this, is that you are expected or you do need to have enough baseload power to manage the ups and downs of these different uh, intermittent type sources of, of, of power. However, there are many ways of doing that. One big way is through batteries. Another way is, just to, is to have a, a diversification of wind and solar across the country, across the, across the province, so that if it's sunny in one place, not sunny in another place, there's enough to balance it out. And the different types of wind and solar means that, you know, it, it, will, it still blows wind at night and it will still be sunny in some parts of the country during the day when it may be less windy. And so there are ways to sort of actually offset this in the grid naturally, but you do need some baseload power. And so there is some requirement there, but nowhere did anyone even request this. <laughs> Reading up on it a little bit, it's like there's something like 90 projects in the works right now, like 90 renewable energy projects uh, across Alberta that are being halted right now that like 
the the vast majority of those, but like like they may never start back up again. And it's something like twenty five million dollars that could potentially be lost. So like for the province that purports to care so much about business, like there is no business case to be made for this. It's ridiculous. It's in such bad faith. And it's so obvious that it's in such bad faith. Would encourage folks if they want to learn more about it. There's some really good reporting that's being done. Um in like the written word on CBC where they like break down some of these claims that that Danielle Smith and her team have been making around like justification for the moratorium. And then even um, we record on Wednesdays and today's episode of CBC's Front Burner podcast, again, actually does a really good job of going through the case that the UCP is attempting to make for this moratorium. Um, so if if folks want to learn more, would would recommend those sources, at, at least at the outset. We have one other staying in the oil patch vibes, which is perhaps even, I don't know, not sillier, but... Oh, it's pretty freaking silly. Um <laughs> And but like, I don't know, like like you said, we were chatting before we we hit record and like it's it's almost admirable the way that like we're finally getting an oil CEO just copying to the fact that like they fully do not care and that it is not in their business interest to I don't want I can't swear to to care about about climate action in the long run. So Suncor, I believe, um, has a new yeah, has a new CEO that came on board in, in the springtime. And he has, let me see, what is this? What does this headline say? Suncor CEO says company has been too focused on energy transition and must get back to the fundamentals. And like he literally says, we have a disproportionate emphasis on longer term energy transition, um, Kruger says, while adding that lower emissions energy is important. Um, it's not what's going to make money for shareholders today. So it's 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 a CEO finally saying what we've always said, which is that an oil and any company, but an oil and gas company, especially it's like, it is not in their best interest to care at all about the long-term prospects of like, not even their company, but like the long-term prospects of like the world and our survivability in general, what they are paid to care about and what they are incentivized to care about is the next six months, every six months. So like (laughs) we finally have a CEO copying to this and then like further to that point and to like drive home the fact that like they are fully just pivoting all the way back to to oil and gas not that they ever pivoted away but you know what i mean they're 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 kind of dropping the facade a bit is that suncor is one of those six companies that is really involved in the pathways alliance which is that big kind of like pr spectacle around net zero for these for these six oil and gas majors based out of based out of canada or so-called canada um and the vp at suncor um who was in charge of sustainability and as a result was kind of the lead on their pathways work um is no longer with the company don't know if she left don't know if she was fired don't really care um but she's no longer with them and now that file is being subsumed by another vice president which means that like they're not prioritizing even their pathways work going forward which is hilarious because not that it was ever like actually meaningful climate action. It was just like greenwashing. But anyway, Suncor is going like full devil horns. Like they they have, yeah, in in no way, shape or form are they keeping up the facade of like, I don't know, renewable energy, kumbaya, greenwashing. And it's frustrating. Well, actually, no, it's not frustrating. It's It's hilarious is what it is because it's finally just like, well, hey, I almost applaud the honesty. Yeah, I mean, especially coming from Suncor specifically, like Suncor was the one that, pretended the most you know like it feels like they really were trying to be the quote-unquote nicer version of an oil company that is very much just proving to be not the case <laughs> like and again never were they going to like i don't think it's reasonable to ever have believed them you know like no one working on the net path the, the pathways alliance can truly believe that their goal is going to be net zero given what they've told their own shareholders. So I I guess what this makes me wonder is like, because I assume a public statement like this and a shift like this wouldn't have come out unless, I don't know, I'm sure they do a lot of like focus grouping and a lot of market research to figure out where sort of um, uh, the, the discourse is at any given moment. And like an announcement like this wouldn't have been made if there wasn't like a an environment that was amenable to it, which I think so like, I don't know, is there a world in which this is a bit of an indicator that um, 
Well, it, I think it is an indicator. We know that like actually like as much as support for climate action is high, support for the oil and gas industry in Canada has also like never been higher. There's like such a ravenous faction of the far right that is like so oil pilled. Um, and, and I feel like this is an indication of that because in making this statement, like I said, they wouldn't have made this statement if it wasn't going to be um, embraced by a, a certain a certain base and a certain faction of this country um so i don't know m- maybe this is a this is an indicator for us that we need to like double down um on pushing back on the oil and gas industry in canada because because clearly we're not demonizing it enough yeah, if well, the demon I- is happy to come out and be like oh hey bt dubs i yeah. am a demon did you know that <laughs> yeah exactly yeah we're not trying to destroy you fast enough sorry you know it's i mean it goes to show you that it should go to show us the learning we have to take that you, you can only imagine you need to take from the the Fed, you hope the feds do and the international community does is just that the oil companies are not going to be part of the solution stop pretending that they are going to be a part of a just transition stop pretending that they're going to be a part of the un climate talks stop pretending that they aren't just going to do what they've always done because that's ridiculous yeah no, so actually, I am curious to see because Suncor obviously always goes to COP every year. They're part of the big group that like comes in and is like, we're part of the solution. And it's like, are we going to let them be part of our delegations this year? Are we going to embrace them in that space? Are we going to let them continue to like, I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Questions, yeah. questions, yeah. questions. Anyway, there's actually like important news to get to. So. All right. So I guess we'll go to a music break. Yes, and I will be the one who announces that music break. Not Stefan Hostetter, but David Hostetter shall announce the music break. I myself shall announce the music break, and we are going to take a music break and return with some climate news before we move on to Stefan's interview with Amanda Jiang from UBC. Beyond, beyond, beyond concepts, beyond, beyond, beyond ideas into infinite potential, infinite possibility, infinite form and creation, infinite form resonating on many frequencies. We go beyond and the resonance rises and we go up into the crown and all frequencies merge in this realm. do some climate news. At least 106 uh, are dead and over 100 over 1000 people are missing in uh, Hawaii after the wildfires. Uh, some fire hydrants did not produce water and some sirens were not working in uh, the main the main municipal area that uh, was burning. Uh, it was found 15 years ago that global heating was causing spring to start earlier in the Arctic, which meant that migration and mating and eating patterns of wildlife uh, would also begin earlier. A new study has found that that paradigm seems to have reached its limit, and now all these patterns are just becoming unpredictable and changing year to year in the Arctic. Uh, and sharks are tripping out in the Florida Keys, uh, consuming massive amounts of cocaine that are being dumped into the ocean by smugglers running away from police. So they found they found some sharks um, in the in the cocaine dumping region, sort of behaving weirdly and running towards people and freaking out. 
So I'm going to jump back to the to the first story there in terms of the the wildfires that have swept over Maui, in, in part because a they are devastating, um, and and but also because they present some of the first instances that I've seen about the government trying to figure out what to do about disaster capitalism. Because something that we've talked about a bunch on the show previously, and I think we'll talk, we'll touch on actually in a part of interview for next week uh, with Kat Kandungog, we is that as these wildfires sweep through and as different destructions occur, with the insurance companies beginning to sort of pull back and stop protecting the people, the most likely occurrence is that other people will come in and try to find ways to to make more money from these from these people who are now in desperate need. And this particular instance, the Hawaii governor, Josh Green, has actually reached out to the state's attorney general to explore uh, the possibility of a moratorium on sales of damaged or destroyed properties. The fires have already destroyed, you know, 2,200 structures, 86% of them are people's houses. And you can imagine how this combined with the fact that people have already been talking about for years about how Hawaii as a tourist destination is deeply problematic because it really hurts the people who are living there. People who are living there do not have the ability to like own their own properties anymore because so many people use that as a vacation destination. And even in interviews around this experience, there were people, residents, talking about how the next day a lot of tourists were going out swimming in the waters just beside the burned down houses. And that level of extractive experience within Hawaii is, you know, is is pretty normal at this point. And so very easily you could imagine the resorts who could buy up these la- this land and start making money on short stays and other things from from these people who now have nothing. And then where do they go? Where do they live? You know, so the opportunity for even more displacement is huge. And to see the government trying to manage that and try to find a way to manage that is is actually really interesting. I don't know whether or not this moratorium will work. I don't know whether or not what it even would mean in terms of other things. But it's the first time I've really heard a government try to step in and prevent some of the worst outcomes you could imagine in terms of displacement of residents in these kind of scenarios. Uh, but to you, Lauren. No, and I mean, that's incredibly heartening. And I wonder if potentially the government's willingness to step in and like um like the rapid pace at which they're stepping in is perhaps because for like not even months but like for years now native hawaiians have been like essentially begging tourists to like not come to hawaii as frequently as they have like obviously yes hawaii has a big tourism industry and i think there's a lot of people that advocate for that continuing um in 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 some capacity because it's 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 financially beneficial for a lot of people on the island but like yeah like for years now you've heard from people like we do not have the capacity to ha- to to have all these people here we do not have the resources it's hard on the environment it's hard on the climate for you to be coming over here also this is like occupied territory it it is a colonized nation in and of itself so i i wonder if yeah perhaps the government's willingness to say like hey hold off is is because like this is a conversation that in a lot of ways has already been happening for years and years and this is just a bit of like a a, a culmination and a bit of a breaking point where it's like it's finally gotten to the point where like no you really cannot come that 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 space needs to be used by by locals and by folks who are from that who are from those communities um but yeah it's been like it's been devastating to hear about wildfires all summer now it's been terrible wildfires are still raging in bc there's like um evacuation orders and yellowknife so it's like they're brutal everywhere, but but hearing specifically stories that have been coming out of out of um, Hawaii have been brutal. It's something like a thousand people I heard uh, were missing uh, still as of like 24 hours ago, um, and almost 100 lives have been like confirmed as lost. So it's 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 been terrible to see, um, but like you said, it, at least there is some showing of a government stepping in to sort of. Um, prevent some of that disaster capitalism that we've all kind of it's a term that we've become really familiar with in the last few years i feel like it's one that like really came on my radio uh, my radio my radar when puerto rico happened um and that hurricane and then naomi klein put out her her small book um what was that book called something about paradise anyway it's great 
Um, I would highly recommend people read it because it's very short and punchy and gets the point across. The Battle for Paradise is also the name of the Naomi Klein book. Thank you. The Yeah, so briefly before we go to the next set of news, the last thing that I think part of what is causing this push from moratorium is just how quickly the developers have moved in. Like, they're already approaching people who haven't even begun to figure out what they've entirely lost yet. Like, they are getting so immediately bombarded with the idea of selling their space. Like, can you imagine losing your home and a week later someone's trying to buy it from you? Like... That's a, so predatory. It's a, so unbelievably predatory that, like, I think part of it is just the government being like, no, you can't do this because it's in bad taste. You know, like, uh, there's a little bit of this, it, like, it's, it's not probably not even a policy issue. It's like, it's just like, leaves your mouth gross. Yeah, it's right up there with with the Suncor CEO just being, like, so yeah. blatantly villainous, right? Um, and it's like, I don't know. I know that that's always been a symptom of capitalism, but it, it I don't know. I was going to say it seems very late stage capitalism, but it doesn't. What it actually seems like is very like, I don't know, like old timey newspaper illustrations of like fat cat CEO coming in and taking advantage of people. Like it's the system has always been set up to 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 cater to exploitation. And this is just another another example of that. Yeah, for sure. All right. Rest of the news. Stefan is liking flash photography on Twitter X. Deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon is still going down hugely compared with last year. Um, Scientists who observe sea ice in Antarctica think they may be witnessing the beginning of the collapse of all sea ice on the continent as an area the size of Mexico has failed to freeze this year. Um, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak plans to use up all their oil and gas reserves in the North Sea, starting by authorizing over 100 new drilling licenses. So he wants to max out their North Sea reserves. Um, that seems to have angered Stefan and Lauren, so maybe I should... <laughs> should I not mention Stefan's incorrectness about veganism again before you comment, or should I just close... The North Sea thing, it's like, I, I'm i going to be honest, this is the first time hearing about it. I didn't do my research ahead of time on this one, but it kind of boggles the mind a little bit, um, especially because, because like, isn't Rosebank, which is like one of the bigger projects, like, isn't it on ice as it is? Like, why are you approving all of these, like, licenses and permits when, like, the projects that are currently underway are on hold? But you know what? I say that. And at the same time, this week... So the Bay Dinar project out out east um, off the coast of Newfoundland um, was kind of put on ice earlier this year um, until the business case can be made for it again. I think I think that's kind of the top line message. And um, Equinor has just started drilling for new reserves out there. So, like, I mean, I don't I don't understand how any of this works. They're always looking for new reserves. I think that's maybe what it is, is that they're always looking for justification to continue either acquiring or extending their permits on the off chance that they can continue to drill. You know what I mean? They're like covering their bases. And actually it probably from a shareholder standpoint, it probably looks good. They're probably able to go back to their shareholders and be like, we have a hundred new licenses that are never going to be used. And we're just going to get have stranded assets anyway, but, but we got them. I don't understand how the economy works. You guys. (laughs) I mean, I think that's certainly part of it. Like part of it is definitely like how oil companies are valued is includes their future reserves. That's like one of the big concerns about the impending collapse is that at some point, the once the world decides we aren't going to use all of the oil in the reserves, all of that becomes stranded assets and then their books suddenly look terrible. And so maintaining assets now keeps the share price high which share price high which is what they need and the, but the moment that we realize we don't need those that oil it won't be one company it'll be all oil companies <laughs> will have an unbelievable amount of stranded assets cuz like i think it has to be 20 years out like i think you need as much oil in your reserves to pump as much oil as you have now for the next 20 years and all of that is included in your share price and so like yeah it's nuts. Yeah, so I'm right. It is all smoke and mirrors. These are, yeah, anyway. Divest hey, your not. assets, people. Otherwise, you're all going to be in the freaking hole. Not that not that we're not already in the hole. Yeah. I mean, I'm not that, I'm, not, I'm still broke. 
and I, I've, <laughs> I've never invested in oil. Like, we're all screwed. I'm sorry. I am. It's hot here. My brain is very rapidly melting out of my ears and nothing I'm saying is making sense. Lauren is insolvent. Somebody inject her with some cash flow. Oh, yeah. No. Hundo P looking looking for a wealthy benefactor. You don't <laughs> even have to be that handsome. We'll figure it out. I promise. Email us at contact at greenmajority.ca. <laughs> Finally, a new result. A new result. What did I write result? A study, Stefan. A study that has results. Major results. Major implications for Stefan's moral failing on this show in particular that has been going on for far too long. On the environmental impact of diets, has found that veganism cuts your dietary emissions by 75%. Stefan, did you hear that? I heard 75%. Think about that as you consume your butchered meat pies at your little fossil fuel uh, cottage next week. Mm. What is that? Alexander Duncan. All right, never mind. Anyway, the, the study says, quote, dietary impacts of vegans were 25% of high meat eaters. Um, but psychological impacts of vegans were 500% of meat eaters because they texted Stefan about how superior they were to him so often. Um, 25% for land use, 46.4% for water use, 27% for eutrophication, and 34.3% for biodiversity. So these are the percentages uh, that represent how much less impact a vegan diet has on these these things. Land use, water use, biodiversity, etc. But they also found that at least 30% differences were found between low and high meat eaters for most indicators. Uh, and they write, they opine, despite substantial variation due to where and how food is produced, the relationship between environmental impact and animal-based food consumption is clear and should prompt the reduction of the latter. You hear that? This should prompt the reduction. I mean, so in your life of the latter, Stefan. I mean, that's fair. Majorly I, speaking. Majorly speaking. You know, again, never on have we not noted that it would reduce the impact, and also, it should be noted that you can get a lot of that benefit by just dropping beef. Uh, that's like so much worse than everything else. That like you can get at least sixty percent of the benefit by by just well, dropping. That's a made up stat, but I mean, we can imagine it's it's a made up stat. Yes, but it's. I, I can go find the actual stats exactly. But the point really is that, like, again, we're not saying you shouldn't do this. The point is that the idea... Wow, he's doubling down, folks. He's doubling down. You just shouldn't... No, 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 no. You shouldn't tell people how they should have their diets. Like, you can certainly inform people that it's better and undeniably. Like, the amount of land being raised for cattle grazing is terrible. It's the main reason why the Brazilian rainforests are being uh, threatened, like there are some serious problems, undeniably. You should you should personally, if he feels calls to you, do better. You must go vegan. And uh, on yeah. that note, I have dinner plans yes. at Ottawa's preeminent vegan restaurant, Pure Kitchen. Please sponsor us. Please sponsor me. Like like Dave said, <laughs> I need money. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a close to this segment and uh, say uh, that we're gonna go to a music break. And when we come back, uh, Stefan <laughs> will be interviewing. <laughs> Amanda Jiang from UBC and Lauren will be consuming a five foot square block of paneer this <laughs> Isn't paneer cheese? Yes. <laughs> no, I'm going to be consuming a green smoothie the size of my face. The Green Majority is entirely listener supported. And we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, including other great shows like Left Turn Canada, Big Shiny Takes, and North Untapped. Thank you so much for listening. I am here with Amanda Zhang, the assistant professor at UBC 
and the principal investigator of the Lab for Environmental Assessment and Policy. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So we're going to talk about your lab and the convergence of of science and sort of social science and policy in a second. Uh, But before we get there, by way of introduction, how did you get interested and involved sort of in environmental and sustainability work? Yeah, uh, you know, I think I was always interested in the environment as a young person, but at the same time, I think I had a like really narrow understanding of what the environment meant. Like I'm not a like I'm not a particularly outdoorsy person. And I had this idea of like, oh, nature is something that you go into. And I don't always love doing that. So, you know, how much do I care about the environment? But I think things really clicked for me in university. Um, I was really interested in human health and I was learning about like bioaccumulative contaminants. So like this is like embodied pollution, right? It's like pollution that, you know, like ends up in your body, multi-generational, you can, you can pass it on even. And I think that really helped me uh, stop seeing like humans and nature or humans and the environment as separate entities and like better understand that like we are part of the environment and our health and well-being is, you know, inherently linked to the health of ecosystems and natural systems around us. And I think this is kind of behind this idea of like planetary health now that a lot of people talk about. And um, I should say the more that I learned, the more I came to understand that these are absolutely not new ideas. Like there are so many indigenous worldviews that have this like relational systems perspective built in. Uh, but for me, this was like a real shift in perspective. And I think it was one of the things that like allowed me to connect to sustainability work in a different way. And um, despite being not an outdoorsy person. And yeah, I think that was when I really got interested in, in working more in sustainability. Yeah, that that's fair. I mean, that, and that's a common, I mean, not misconception, but I, th- I do think that's sort of like a a really common thing of like, oh yeah, environment, interested in the environment must mean that you want to spend two weeks, you know, backpacking through some rugged terrain when like the environment is literally everything. Anywhere yeah. you are is the environment, you know, and trying to protect it will have impacts regardless of of where you are. You know, you don't want to be drinking things with plastic in it. You probably care a little bit about the environment. <laughs> Just Yeah, exactly. There's, there's no way you can separate yourself from it. So. Yeah, for sure. And so I want to talk about your lab, but also I understand that it can be uh, a difficult task as a as a professor and someone who's done their PhD and doing the research work to be able to sort of translate that to, to layman. My, my sister also did her PhD in, in engineering and I tried to read her thesis and I, I got, I couldn't even get through the abstract. I'm sorry, Megan, I apologize, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. So, uh, how would you describe it, you know, to a, to a person, uh, who may not have the background in the field? Uh, well, I'll try my best. <laughs> um, as you know, academics is actually not our strong suit, but I would say that the the research in my group is um, it's focused on trying to reimagine how we make decisions about technology and policy to try to support, you know, moving towards planetary health and justice. Because we're, we're facing a lot of linked sustainability crises like climate, air quality, toxic pollution, inequality, many more, um, and there are a lot of decisions that we really need to make about technologies and policies that can support the sorts of transitions and transformations of our energy systems, of our transportation and mobility systems, like how we live entirely, really, right? Um, and so the goal of the work in our group is to try to help us make better decisions. So to develop some tools that allow us to better grapple with um, complexity, that, that bring together more different ways of knowing, um, and that uh, involve more people, allow more people to participate in that decision-making process. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's so important, you know, because it can feel really difficult to know exactly what should be done. And I think that modeling, especially in some of the science work, sometimes does come up with, I would say, um, unexpected outcomes sometimes you know like like I, the one that's often here is like how many times you have to say use a reusable bag for it to be environmentally more environmentally friendly you know or these different types of things that like may intuitively feel better but w- once you start modeling it out you realize like oh no i really got to take care of this one water bottle i have because 
it's actually embodied carbon is pretty significant. And so I can't just keep losing my reusable water bottle every six months because that's not great for the environment in sort of a similar way. And so like getting the hard data, I think sometimes can teach us stuff that we would in no way have expected from sort of our daily lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I think that's why it, it, it is important to do that kind of analysis because things are, you know, if it were all intuitive, <laughs> we probably wouldn't be in the sort of mess that um, we're in. At the same time, I think um, what can sometimes happen is because like that, the analysis is so technical. Sometimes there are like a million little tiny technical details of like, well, like what you, you know, or like, how are we going to estimate this or that, that um, it also sometimes what that can hide is also how much, um, you know, like all the assumptions, the uncertainty, the the values that we kind of bring into to that modeling exercise. And that's actually where I feel like there's a lot of opportunity to kind of try to reimagine because I think um, it, traditionally you can, it, it feels like, oh, like the analysis spits out this answer and this is what we should do. But it's like actually, um, you know, like those models, the models and tools, like they're not the solution, but they're tools, right? Because like ultimately like, or the, people make decisions, right? Like the models can't make the decisions for us. And we also, as people, um, kind of bring a lot into the way we model. And so one of our goals in, in the work that we do in our group is really to try to um, make that process more transparent and participatory and, and democratic, right? To like bring more people and their different perspectives and values into that modeling process to be like, okay, is this a reasonable assumption? Um, like, you know, one of the things I work on, for instance, is, um, uh, toxic contaminants in fish and it's like okay like what are the assumptions that we make about how much fish people eat and you know historically a lot of those assumptions were based on like not necessarily totally representative didn't really capture let's say people who um, eat fish for subsistence reasons or for whom that harvesting is part of um, their traditional life ways and then you're if you're just basing all of your decision making off of like assuming like oh people eat fish once a month you end up with a really different answer, right? And so that's why it's really important to um, kind of open that up a little bit more. Oh, that's, that's so interesting. It makes a lot of sense because like, I, I, I feel like my next question dives into that exact thought about how you do things differently. But the, uh, one thing I can't get out of my brain, so I, I'm going to do a quick veer off before we come to that, is that one of my, one of the funnier experiences I've had with one of the roles I do, which is like listening to um, climate aligned businesses make pitches. I was sort of working with like, some accelerator work. And so I'd hear different companies come in and make their pitch about climate change or about why their product should be a business that we'd accept. And so it always included at least a bit about why it mattered, you know, why it mattered to climate change to be to them. And the thing that was always funny to me was regardless of the industry that they were talking about, whether it was food and agriculture or if it was uh, fashion or if it was you know directly working with oil companies or transportation or whatever, it didn't matter. Every one of them had some way to say that their industry was actually the most polluting in the world. It it like and which was impossible. Like I listened to fifteen pitches, and I I would learn that both the fashion industry, the food industry, the oil sector, and transportation all apparently cause the most carbon out of ever than any other industry. And it's like it, but it all comes down to modeling, right? It all comes down to what assumptions you're making internally in these systems. And so everyone found their own sort of model that they made their carbon that they'd be moving sound the best, and then they would bring that to the the pitch. But it is speaks to that exact point you're making, which is like the assumptions you make very much impact the outcome ex that you get. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so to get back to what you're saying before, uh, how do you try to do this differently within your research lab? So emphasis on the try. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know that we're always successful, but I think one of the... Um, one of the way, one of the things we try to do differently is to have a really interdisciplinary approach. Um, you know, not just have like engineers, for instance, working on these tools to bring. You know, like when you train in a certain discipline, it kind of like trains you to think a certain way and like make a certain set of assumptions and things like that. And so when you bring together though people from engineering and public health, geography, like everyone comes in with a different like baseline set of like oh this is how things should be done. And it's at those, like, at the friction point, right? Like where, where you're like, oh, you're assuming something very different that you start to be able to kind of like open things up and be explore and 
and ask questions, right? About like, oh, should we be more curious, let's say, about what this assumption is and what that means, like what the implications then might mean, let's say, for um, this the impacts of this technology. So th I think that's one way. And I really like, you know, huge thanks to <laughs> all the members of our group who I think do such a, um, like, it really enriches our research that they bring so much, like both in terms of like their training, their lived experiences, their backgrounds. Um, and I think that that is um, one thing that we really try to um, do is like learn from each other and collaborate. Um, but we also would say like try to collaborate and work in solidarity with a lot of different partners from beyond the university too. Um, we have partners in government, um, uh, civil society, um, some community-based organizations. Uh, and that too, I think, is so helpful for that like reimagining or rethinking the way that you know we've done things in the past because I think it's like sometimes people talk about this as more transdisciplinary work or like problem focused work but like we're focused on like addressing this problem in a way that really transcends some of these artificial like boundaries and silos that you know in academia we are very prone <laughs> to um, having and and reinforcing so I think um, those are some of the things that um, or those are some of the like approaches that I think we're trying to bring to, to this work in my group. Cool. And then so the flip side of that, I guess, is that you're bringing engineering sort of into the social science realm, you know, in this ways that you're trying to open up your own engineering based lab to other, uh, other disciplines. You're also sort of bringing engineering into the policy sphere. And so I'm curious how you sort of see the role of engineering you know, within the social sciences. Yeah, you know, I like maybe first I'll speak to it the other direction, which is first like the role of social sciences and engineering, because I think it's actually like also a lot about that, right? Like bringing in more of the social sciences into what traditionally we think of as engineering training. Like when you think about it, like engineers are meant to serve society and they work on things that are, um, yeah, like, and, you know, in your professional ethics, it's like the first thing is like public well-being and, and safety. And so it's kind of strange when you think about it that like, oh, like, it's not a priority necessarily in an engineering degree for people to learn about social systems. Like it, it, it's kind of strange given that that's so much of what supposedly um, the profession is supposed to be about. So I think there's like a huge part of that too is like bringing in more social science perspectives into engineering, um, helping engineers have humility too about like what we, um, I say this also as someone who trained and identified as an engineering, like humility too about like what we do and, and where we really do need um, others like to explore that relationship between technology and society to better understand social context and what that means for why we're designing, what we're designing, how we how we implement. So I think that part is really important. Um, but also like in the other ways you said, like I think um, you know, there there's there's so much there is a lot of opportunity and potential with like a lot of the kind of state of the science techniques that engineers work on, you know, for the things I work on, let's say for like modeling, like all these computational advances and data science and uh, machine learning, they have so much potential to offer for, um, you know, policy decision-making too. Um, it's just that we have to uh, figure out how to, you know, bring together those advanced approaches with the actual decision-making context where it's not like, it's not always like the most, um, Oh, you just gotta have to think about like the fit to purpose. And I actually think that's where understanding of the social context is super important. Um, I think some of the other ways though that like I feel like the engineering perspective is interesting when you start thinking about policy decision making is like one, like a real focus on like materiality, <laughs> if I'll say, like, you know, like infrastructure like stuff. And like remembering that like technology itself like is a form of policy, right? Because it like structures our lives. Like infrastructure is an institution because, you know, some of it is there for like decades behind the scenes, shaping things and constraining our, our, our decisions in ways that we don't always acknowledge. And so I think it's really important also to think about the work that engineers produce as being kind of like a form of, of policy and institutions. Um, yeah. And actually maybe the last thing I'll say about that is like, I think engineering, because it's a really like design oriented discipline. It has that real like action orientation, which I think is also why you can see these linkages between engineering and like public policy, right? Like it is very problem oriented, action oriented. Like here's something that we're trying to um, improve or change or, or, or alter. And so I, I think like there are more connections sometimes than 
than we think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I love that point about how built infrastructure is also policy. You know, like that, like how and how, and even how you build infrastructure can end up being policy, right? Like even something yeah. like, oh, okay, we want to we want this building to exist, but like how you ultimately end up designing that building or or building the building itself comes with so many decisions that it itself it can that could change you know like do you leave say open space for people to sit around the ground or do you not you know it's not exactly engineering it's more an architecture but like versions of that exist on everything you know it exists in if you're building a subway line or if you're you know really any time you're building something you're making a series of decisions that will have an impact on how people experience it or use it or live in it and it is it is policy even if it's stuff yeah, absolutely. And I think that's like one of the things that it's so important for engineers to be curious about. Like when you think about, you know, when you think a lot about the, a lot of these like structural inequities that, you know, that we exist today, a lot of those also come through like this stuff, like you mentioned, right? Like which communities get displaced for a bridge or a highway? How does that happen persistently? Who's in the room when decisions about that are made? And, um, you know, like in that way, like the way we build, design, like deploy technology and infrastructure, it really like it it makes physical, makes real, and then can reinforce those dynamics a lot. Yeah, for sure. And so I am curious to get your perspective a little bit on 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 the impact of modeling, because that's sort of the some of the main work that that you do. And so can you what do you wish policymakers and governments better understood? about the process of making modeling? Yeah, I think this connects to what we were talking about earlier and that I think it's really important to understand that models are tools and not solutions, right? Ultimately, like decisions and actions are taken by people and models can be tools that can help us explore, right? Like, okay, well, what if we thought we assumed this or we think this or, or and then that can be a basis to have further deliberations, right? Like we could explore different possibilities for the future, different scenarios, let's say, like, what if we assume X, Y, Z? Um, but you can't just say, like, like the model itself isn't going to tell you what to do, right? Because then you have to take, like, like the model, models can help us explore, like, what are, what are different potential worlds? But then we have to decide, like, which, which of these potential worlds do we want to, to live in? What, what, which are the different things that we prioritize? And I think sometimes like there's a desire also for um, decision makers to be able to kind of like offload that a little bit to be like, oh, well, the model told us like this. And it's like, well, no, not exactly. Like the model like um, suggests that this could happen if you do these, these things. And it's another decision to say like, well, we want to prioritize that. or um, yeah. So I, I think that's, um, that's one thing. And then the other thing is, I think that's linked to that idea about like uncertainty too, right? Like these are helpful tools for helping us explore. Um, and, I'm and I'm talking specifically in the context where we're using models to kind of like look ahead, right? To kind of like think about what will happen if, um, but there's a lot of uncertainty, right? Like, again, there's no crystal ball. We can't tell exactly what's going to happen. So it's really important to kind of frame models as part of this larger decision-making process. Um, rather than the whole decision-making process. Um, a similar kind of question, but a little more broad. Because I, whenever I get a chance to talk to an academic, I'm always really interested in understanding sort of their perspective on the overarching ecosystem. Because, you know, when you're as deep in sort of the, the knowledge base that you are, what you find interesting and what you see is obviously comes from that lens and it comes you know steeped in the amount of knowledge and information you sort of built up over your over your time as an academic and so from your area i'm curious is there anything that you're particularly interested in or you're watching right now that you're like oh man the average person might not see this but this is really interesting or this might change stuff or watch out for this or something like that yeah so something i'm following um but I don't, you know, I would say actually, like a lot of people are probably following. I just saw something in the New York Times too. Is um, last year, about this time last year, um, the U.S. passed um, 
this law inflation is called the Inflation Reduction Act, which sounds like incredibly boring. Um, I mean, sorry, it's not boring. Inflation is really important, right? <laughs> but um, it wasn't just about inflation. It was actually like also kind of like this first big federal action on energy transitions and climate in the U.S. Um, and it so that was only a year ago, and it's led to like a massive investment in energy transitions in the U.S. and um, it doesn't just have implications for the U.S. either. Like there are ripple effects into Canada, also, um, you know, Mexico, also like all over North America, and then and then globally. And so now, like we're starting like something that I'm really interested in in, in following is like like how that is playing out. Like last year, it was like okay, this has gone through, but now we're actually starting to see that investment happen. And um, there are all sorts of new tension points and tricky questions to have, right? Like, okay, we want to massively scale up um, renewable energy generation, but that doesn't get rid of all the existing questions we have about process, like, and procedure and like things like permitting and where you put things and like, okay, like, how do you get, how do you make sure communities are in support, supportive? Are we still putting those things in places that um, uh, predominantly in, in, um, communities that have been, um, you know, marginalized, like all sorts of new questions that open up now that we have all of that investment. So I think that's something that's going to be, like, I'm really interested in following over the, the coming year. Um, and then also, like I said, kind of seeing what, what that means in the community context as well. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating, right? It's, you get the, especially as a modeler, I'm sure it's like, okay, we will throw this big change and see what happens. <laughs> and then you can actually watch it happen in real time to actually see, you know, how much that actually does impact and in what are the places where assumptions maybe have been correct or incorrect and things like that. Um, so if folks want to learn more about this lab and well, your work, how can they do that? Um, well, they can uh, check out my uh, department at UBC, the Institute for Resources, Environment, and Sustainability, um, where you can find, you know, more links to the work from my group, but also that of a lot of my um, really amazing colleagues who are working on all sorts of aspects of, you know, the sustainability issues that were, you know, that are important, like um, uh, biodiversity, climate, um, water. Uh, so yeah, please do uh, check check us out and um, find out more. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been Amanda Zhang, the assistant or an assistant professor at UBC and the principal investigator of the Lab for Environmental Assessment and Policy. Thanks so much for being here and have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.